There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, Charles Frazier on his new novel, The Trackers. Charles Frazier grew up in the mountains of North Carolina. Cold Mountain, his highly acclaimed first novel, was an international bestseller, selling over one million copies and winning the National Book Award in 1997. It was the inspiration for the Oscar-winning film directed by Anthony Minghella and starring Nicole Kidman, Jude Law and Rennie Zellweger. He's also the author of 13 Moons, Night Woods, most recently Verena, and now Charles's new novel, The Trackers, is what we're going to talk about today. Charles, welcome to Little Atoms. Hi, good to be here. First of all, would you tell us how you would describe the trackers? Uh, well, um, it's a, um, yeah, I don't know. I, it's, I rarely think in those kinds of terms, but it's, uh, it's set in the 1930s during the, the Depression and in all over the place, but the center of the book is, is Wyoming. A young mural painter has gone out there to paint a post office mural, which the federal government paid for hundreds of those during that time. They built little post offices in little towns and then had murals painted for them. And it was just one of those signs that there is a federal government and it's still here and it's, you know, it, it's aware of your existence it was part of the reason for that, that project. Uh, and I'd always been interested in, in that era because that's my, Grandparents were raising their family at that time. My parents were growing up in that in that world and really interested in those in those murals. I love the style of of that 30s uh, public art. So I I combined a bunch of those and uh, and got to write about uh, about some of the places I hadn't written about before. It's not set in in the Southern Appalachians. It's a little bit of a departure. So this is the the era of the Great Depression, and and when I say that, and I'm not going to ask you to recap what the depression was. Obviously, there was a a big crash, Wall Street crash. There's a depression, but the depression goes on for a lot longer than I think people realize. So just tell us something about that. Just something about the lasting effects of the depression into this era, because we're talking, as you said, it's the 30s. It's 
just that things are hot, are heating up in Europe at this time. So this yeah. is like pre-war, pre-Second World War, 1930s. And the depression, the, the crash and everything seems a long time ago. Yeah. So if you, I mean, I think everybody focuses on the stock market crash, which initiated it. But uh, I, I was a little fuzzy on how long it, it lasted until I started this book. But it went on basically through the decade of the 30s. And there were these kind of waves of, oh, things are getting better. Things are getting better. This is over with. And then suddenly would be a second crash and a third crash. And I guess I probably thought that it was um, that the the pain of of those uh, of those years was maybe a little more shared than it was. There were there were people who were hardly bothered by it. There were people who were destroyed by it. There's a scene in the book where the three central characters talk about who's been most scathed by the depression, and the rich guy thinks he's been scathed, and the other two laugh at him. So, yeah, a lot of a lot of that. Um, I wanted to get the worst of it in the book. So there's a scene in a Hooverville, a you know a, a hobo camp in Seattle, and uh, I, I tried to get that range of, of the effects of that. And they were and they were to a great degree worldwide in different ways. We'll come back to that Hooverville a little later on. What we're going to do now is I want to talk about each of the main characters in yeah. turn, and from that will come a discussion of some aspect of of the novel. So Val, first all of right. all, Val Welsh, who is the sort of main protagonist. Tell us something a bit more about who he is. Uh, Val is a uh, middle, upper, middle class kind of uh, kind of guy. He's at this point in the uh, in time, he's about, um, you know, kind of late 20s. And uh, he was from a family well-to-do enough that he thought he could pursue his talent for art went to art school, saw a future for himself. And uh, and then as the depression goes on and on, he sees that future, those dreams, those expectations are all going to be deferred uh, who knows how long. And this is a really great opportunity for him to go halfway across, more than halfway across the country to paint this mural in a tiny little town in Wyoming. And so, yes, it turns out that for artists, there is some opportunities at this particular time. So tell us something yeah. about, so the WPA, which is the Works Progress yeah. Association, um, part of the what latterly becomes the New Deal. Um, tell us what their work was, and I guess particularly to do with art and artists. Yeah, the different different branches of uh, of of that project did all kinds of public art projects all over the country. Not just murals, but those are the the really uh, standout ones. Um, they also put a lot of money into things like um, oh, like the Blue Ridge Parkway in that runs from almost uh, west of Washington D.C. all the way down the Southern Appalachians. It's uh, I'm about a, a mile from it where I am right now. Uh, still the most used national park. That was construction began during the the WPA era, all of the, those, so many of those, uh, those things that were initiated then are still here and still returning dividends all these years later. But it was to both to give people jobs and to give people hope that this 
you're still seeing things happening and you, you know, it's, everything's not lost. We can move forward. And, and part of what the themes of those paintings were really supposed to be was something positive and uplifting and local. And in terms of artists, we're talking like some, you know, major artists worked on this project. Yeah. So you've, you've had uh, maybe the most influential artist of the times, Diego Rivera. And you can, you can look at photographs of these murals all over the country and see his, see his vision uh, in a lot of them. And Thomas Hart Benton was the other one. And uh, so they, they were all, or many, many, many of them were really influenced by the vision of those two major painters. Tell us something about the mural that Val is to paint, because you do go into the, some of the technicalities of painting a mural. With most of those small post offices, you had this this awkward shape. It was like the the postmaster's door was at one end of the room where all the mailboxes were. It was a shape that uh, rose above the door and back down, um, and he he had to figure out how to use that in his composition. And I've looked at a lot of those, and they were successful in different degrees on how to do it. Had to figure that out. Had to figure out how to uh, how to get the that place uh, represented, and in a lot of cases, it was really, really literal. Like, oh, they raise a lot of corn around here, so I've got a cornfield with people working in it at harvest time, and that kind of thing. Real, real literal. And he has more ambition. He wants he wants to capture a moment in the history of that place, and for the for the history to kind of follow a timeline across that arc of the wall and to to represent the moment in time where um, sort of not exactly first contact, but in those early years of contact between the Plains Indians and white people who were going to come in and take everything. And he had to be careful because he wasn't supposed to get political or that sort of thing. Um, but he's trying. And um, so he does a lot of thinking about that and and learning the process because those real egg tempera uh, murals were messy, slightly complicated. Yeah, you mentioned that his um his mentor, his art teacher, says to him at one point, "Don't go painted someone with a copy of the Daily Worker in it into the mural in some obscure corner." So presumably, this is something that people did, was it? Yeah, absolutely. There's a, there's a, a Coit Tower in San Francisco. The inside of that tower is full of these murals, and there are several places where there there are things like that, little political touches, like a guy or a newsstand with you know with uh, communist and extremely liberal publications, that sort of thing. Or sometimes they put the face of some somebody they really didn't like some reactionary right-wing politician in, you know, in a really unlikely, on a, on a really unlikely character. Tell us something about Eve then, who is uh, one of the other major characters. Who is she? Eve is, Eve is from, um, from Tennessee. And she, like a lot of, um, like a lot of rural families, uh, which is what I mostly knew about, but, you know, larger families. She was an older child. She was in high school. She loved high school. And her parents just kind of made it known 
that we can't afford to keep you. We've got all these little kids to feed and you need to kind of find a way to take care of yourself. So she hits the road to become what she calls a fruit tramp, meaning following the seasons, picking whatever crops need to be picked at that at that time of year. And what she learns during several years of living like that is how to how to survive, how to take care of herself, how to be self-reliant. She at some point has this opportunity to sing for a country western swing band and they like her singing and hire her and all of a sudden she goes from from hobo to a performer on on stage at dances in little towns in the west and there she meets this rich rancher who just falls for her the minute he sees her sing hears her sing and before you know it they're married and she finds herself living on this enormous ranch with a big ranch house that's got a bunch of important paintings in it. He's a collector. So her life has, has changed dramatically. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Charles Fraser, and we're talking about his book, The Trackers. And Charles, just staying with Eve's story for a moment, just tell us a bit more about what life would have been like for somebody who was one of those itinerant workers, a fruit tramp, you know, or a hobo, traveling the boxcars across the country. How dangerous was it? 
it was dangerous for all of them. And there were there are estimates that there were as many as a half a million teenagers, you know, kids under 17 uh, doing that at the worst of the depression. It was dangerous for all of them. It was extremely, extremely dangerous for the women. Lots of assaults, just exploitation, a terrible time and place to be out on your own. So she's she's made her way through that. It shaped her life. She's toughened up. She's confident in her ability to handle herself. Uh, and then she marries this this rich guy, almost, I don't know whether you'd say on a whim, but um, without a whole lot of thought about where that might lead her. And so, so when the, as the book begins, she's already been married to him for a couple of years now. And so this is John Long, who is uh, the rancher, as you said, in Wyoming. Tell us a little bit about his past. Yeah, he's from a he's from a wealthy northeastern family, you know, sort of Boston area kind of kind of thing. He, against his father's wishes, volunteered for World War One and became a um, a sniper. He's a really good shot. And then he, because his name's John Long, um, and he was a sniper, he thinks it's cute to have a sign over the entrance to the ranch saying long shot. That's the name of the ranch. He's uh, He's got political ambitions, but he doesn't want to have to fight for it. He doesn't want to have to, um, to have a real campaign. He's trying to set himself up for an appointment when an old senator currently in office dies. And um, uh, yeah, he's, he's looking for the easy way into, into that. Got this uh, got this house full of uh, significant paintings and um, not a whole lot to do. He's got plenty of people working on the ranch, taking care of things, including an old foreman cowboy named Pharaoh. So he's um, he's kind of a mixture of attractive. Val finds him, you know, really interesting, and he's kind of envious of what. Long has his experience, his culture, his possessions, and his wife, and um, so that's that's long in a nutshell, anyway. And you mentioned Thoreau. I was going to get onto him in a minute, but we may as well talk about him now. So he he seems like a link to an older time, a much more wild and dangerous time. Yeah, he's he's a he's a vestige of the old West of the old nineteenth century West. People in, in that town have these rumors about him that he that he was the young soldier who killed Crazy Horse um, when he was a prisoner, and some and a, a young soldier stabbed him with a bayonet. Uh, there's there's rumors that he that he was a guy who helped Billy the Kid elude capture instead of that he didn't really get killed and helped him get to Mexico during the Lincoln County War in New Mexico. He won't deny or affirm any of those uh he really he really dislikes that mythology of the west even though he kind of trades on it at times tell us something about the the wyoming landscape and writing about it the only thing i really know about wyoming now is that it's a very expensive place it's a place where you know film stars own parts of it and ranches and things but what would it have been like at this time um small towns and large ranches and a certain amount of uh, of oil and gas exploration already going on at this time 
when I was a kid, we used to go out there a lot. And I, I remember, I remember Wyoming from not even 30 years after the time of this book. So I, I, I kind of, you know, uh, strip mine those memories for, for the descriptions in the book. I lived, I lived in Colorado for a good bit of the eighties. And so that Rocky Mountain, eastern slope of the Rocky Mountains, I've known fairly well for a long time. I said earlier that we were, I was going to ask you about the Hoovervilles. Um, there's a section yeah. in the book, as you said, where Val is he's starting his search for Eve. He ends up in Seattle, and one of the places, there's a couple of hobo camps um, that he visits. One of them is a bit rougher with a lot of the younger people, but another one is more like the Hooverville place. It's more like a shanty town, has a sort of semi-permanence yeah. to it. And while he's there, he meets... Um, just a, a couple of in one scene, just a couple of minor characters who are two men that are living in a house surrounded by books, and they used to be, they used to be teachers, which gives us an indication of how the depression was affecting everybody across the country. And so, tell us something about what these Hoovervilles would have been like. They they were um, uh, there was a, there was a variety. They could be pretty horrible, violent, um, really dirty places. But there are also some where people, like this one in Seattle, I did a good bit of reading about it. People were really trying to get back to as close to a sense of normalcy as they could. It was my take on it. And they they had sort of an organization of leadership in it. They bought and sold these tar paper shacks uh, as they came and went and, you know, and, and tried to tried to live the life that they that they lost uh, on a obviously much smaller scale. And there's in the Seattle section of this book, there's, you see a little bit of that kind of Hooverville. And then you see uh, what was frequently called the jungle, which was much more violent, much more raw, that kind of place. And part of the book later on is set in Florida and I don't want to talk about those characters because I think it gives too much away as to what the uh, what the the sort of mystery of the story is. Um, but we meet some a very violent family, um, and I was struck being somebody who visits Florida regularly. I was very struck by this um, this view into its like Wild West beginnings almost, and yeah. I can't help but think that like because it seems like a terrible place. In this story, and in that, I can't help but think, and maybe this is me just me just reaching here because of what I feel about the place, but I couldn't help but feel some sort of echoes of the terrible direction that Florida is going in now. <laughs> well, I also lived in Florida for quite a few years, and that scene is in central Florida, and the, all the settings and that kind of stuff is based on uh, you know, a million mountain bike rides that I took on these these back trails and swampy areas and all that. So I just pictured one particular uh, trail along a river and imagined people living there and what kind of people would these be and all that. But uh, I mean, Florida has always been it. John Wesley Harden, the famous outlaw, got his start in northern Florida, not Texas or wherever. He, it, it was the Wild West before there was a Wild West, that northern third of Florida. And I've, I've always felt like uh, Florida retained a certain amount of that, that 
And, you know, you live off a tourist economy. You're not going to see these people again. Why not rip them off? You know, that that kind of attitude that that you still see in, in Florida. You, you might have been able to tell I was having a great deal of fun writing that section. For sure, for sure. To finish this off then, can I get you to read us a bit? Sure. So this is uh, fairly early on in the book. Val is... Uh, uh, is staying in a guest cabin while he works on the painting on Long's Ranch. And he's gotten to know Pharaoh a little bit. He's gotten to know Eve and Long. They have dinners and stay up late talking and drinking wine. And Val, uh, there's a horse named Pelita, a white horse, whitish gray horse, that Eve's trying to learn. She's trying to learn to ride, and that's that's her horse. And Pharaoh... Uh, your first introduction to Pharaoh is fairly violent and, and scary. So the idea of him being anything but that's not quite clear yet. So Val wakes up in the middle of the night, and this is what he finds. That night, I couldn't sleep. I didn't look at the clock. Never do. I didn't want the alarm to ring in the morning, and I come crawling out of bed knowing I was awake for a specific number of hours and then feel foggy and sleep short all day. I'd rather wake up thinking maybe I hovered in and out a little bit overnight than move on with the work. However long I lay awake hovering during the middle of this particular night, at some point through the three-inch space in the one raised window, I heard sounds outside, a single horse at a canter in the soft footing of the round pen, quiet voices. Without turning on a light, I eased out onto the porch under a full moon, a crisp geometry in the cloudless sky. I could see Pelita circling in the round pen, a ghostly shape, like pale moonlit water, or a spirit stream of ectoplasm flowing wave-like in the material world. The voices, I realized, were Eve and Pharaoh. I moved a little closer to the porch rail and saw that Eve was having a riding lesson. Pharaoh sat on a fence rail murmuring suggestions. I could only be sure of half the words, and I couldn't tell the difference between when Pharaoh talked to Pelita and when he talked to Eve. I'd never heard him use that voice with humans. When Eve spoke back, it sounded like listening in on a confession, a tone of great calmness and respect. Pelita came to a slow stop, a stutter of muffled hoofbeats like a jazz drummer at the end of an improvisation on a well-known ballad, trailing off to silence, having run out of ideas. Pharaoh kept saying words like better and good. Then I heard him say, you're learning to listen to Pelita. Their voices had the tone of a tryst, a secret meeting, I realized it would be awkward and bad in several ways to be caught listening in on this three-way private conversation among Pharaoh, Pelita, and Eve. I backed through the door and closed it carefully, wondering not so much what they were saying to each other, but why they were there in the middle of the night. Back in bed, I did look at the clock, 2.35, and of course I hardly slept until the alarm rang at 6.30. So I've been talking to Charles Frazier. We've been talking about his book, The Trackers, which is out now in the UK from Forty State. Charles, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with me. Thank you. Good to talk to you. 
This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.